This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Yes, this is the last episode of 2023, so we thought, why not do a top five? I think you're in store for a great episode. Before we get going, uh, one holiday ask, uh, you know, we're always trying to expand listenership, and one way that we can do that is reviews and five-star ratings on wherever you listen to your podcast. So stop what you're doing. We're not asking for a six-star rating. All we're asking for is a five-star rating. So thank you, listener. John, how are you doing in Calgary? Things are good out here. Just, yeah, the year has come to an end very quickly. So uh, I can't believe it's already the end of 2023. Yes, the days are long in medicine, in residency, in parenthood, but the years are short. Okay, anyway, first up in our top five in no particular order, hydrocortisone in severe community-acquired pneumonia published in New England Journal in April of 2023 known as the Cape Cod Trial. All right, cool. So what was the research question here? Does early treatment with hydrocortisone reduce mortality at 28 days among patients admitted to an ICU with severe community-acquired pneumonia? All right. And why does this get top five status for you? It's community-acquired pneumonia. We see this day in and day out. It is such a common cause of morbidity and mortality in older adults So to have a study which hints at potentially finding a treatment that improves mortality, boom, you're in my top five. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so how do they do this study? This was a double-blind, randomized, controlled superiority trial conducted in 31 centers in France. We'll break down the methods with the PICO mnemonic, the population. They included adults age 18 and up with severe community-acquired pneumonia, That was based on both clinical and radiologic criteria, and of course they had to be admitted to the ICU. The main exclusion criteria, if the patient was DNR, if the patient was in septic shock, or if they had influenza. The intervention was hydrocortisone 200 milligrams daily for four to seven days, based on their clinical improvement, and the comparator was placebo, and the outcome was all-cause death by 28 days. And what was the main finding here? So the top line results, they included 800 some odd individuals, average age 67, 70% were men. By day 28, death had occurred in 6% in the hydrocortisone group and 12% in the placebo group. That's an absolute difference of 6%. That's incredible. There are very few things in medicine that lead to a 6% absolute reduction in mortality. And the risk of adverse events was pretty similar between the two, with the exception, perhaps, of hyperglycemia. Yeah, 6% is huge. Uh, What were some of the limitations, though? So this is not the first randomized trial of steroids for community-acquired pneumonia. It probably won't be the last of trials for community-acquired pneumonia and the use of steroids. I did a I'd call it shallow dive. I first asked ChatGPT to sort of give me a summary of all the prior randomized trials in this space, and it was lackluster. It just couldn't do it, which was surprising. So I had to spend my own mental brain power to try to figure this out. So a small snapshot, there's been approximately 10 
randomized trials for adults with severe community-acquired pneumonia who got steroids or something else. And of these 10 trials, maybe six or seven of them showed a clear benefit. The rest did not. In the meta-analyses, you see that overall there clearly is a benefit. So that's the biggest limitation. How do you fit this in with the prior literature? And I think the biggest trial before this one that was sort of neutral was the ESCAPE trial. Um, it was a randomized trial of, I think it was like 700 some odd individuals. So you could ask yourself, well, why was this ESCAPE trial negative? Whereas this Cape Cod trial was positive. Well, in ESCAPE, they used low-dose methylprednisone, and also they didn't randomize right when the patients got into the ICU. So who knows? Maybe the reason why Cape Cod was positive is because they used high-dose, and they really got to the patients soon after coming in with this severe community-acquired pneumonia. Yeah, okay. It's, it is always hard when there's been so many mixed results. I guess, what's your bottom line? Like, what's your takeaway from this? Bottom line hydrocortisone clearly improves mortality for older adults with severe community-acquired pneumonia who are in the ICU, full stop. Sounds like a top five to me. Yep, and it's certainly changed my practice. Okay, John, which article do you have up for us next? Uh, so we're going to talk about terzepatide versus insulin lispro added to basal insulin in type 2 diabetes. This was the SURPASS-6 randomized control trial published in JAMA of October 2023. Totally agree. This, again, was a big trial, certainly a top five trial. What was the research question here? They wanted to know, can terzepatide, a once-weekly insulinotropic polypeptide and GLP-1 analog, improve diabetic control compared with short-acting insulin in patients who are already on long-acting insulin? And why was this a top five for you? Well, you know, Ozempic is not old news yet, but terzepatide is quickly coming up as the new kid on the block. And how does it hold up against short-acting insulin for diabetic control is an important question because if we could help get patients off of short-acting insulin, given we know that there's a significant harm potential, this could definitely be a game changer. Totally agree. What was the design here? This was an open-label phase three non-inferiority randomized control trial. From a PICO perspective, the population, this was adults with type 2 diabetes who were on basal insulin at baseline. They had to have an A1C of greater than 7.5%. With stable weight, they excluded patients with type 1 diabetes, those with a history of pancreatitis, with certain cardiovascular events in the prior two months, and those with a family history of men, as well as medullary thyroid cancer. The intervention here was once weekly subcutaneous terzepatide, starting at a 2.5 milligram dose and increasing every four weeks. The comparator was three times a day insulin Lizpro, and this was started at four units and titrated twice weekly. The main outcome was a primary change in A1C over a 52-week period. Okay, and what did they find? 1,428 patients were randomized, 60% were women, the average age was about 60, 93% uh, were white, and the average A1C was 9% with a BMI of 33. What they found was that terzepatide led to a 2% reduction in A1C compared with a 1% reduction in Lizpro. Uh, this finding meant that terzepatide was both non-inferior as well as superior to short-acting insulin. As well, from a secondary uh, outcome perspective, they showed significant weight loss. Patients on terzepatide lost 9 kilograms versus patients on insulin who gained 3 kilos. Yeah, it's just... Uh... This is again going to be such a game changer of a medication uh, once we get it in Canada. Anyway, what were the limitations? 
Uh, you know, the main limitations, of course, GI side effects, as we've seen with Ozempic, were another common thing that patients had to deal with. Uh, I guess this was also an open-label design, but overall, a pretty impressive randomized control trial. I agree. And bottom line? This is going to be a game changer. You get better diabetic control, you get better weight loss, and you don't get hypoglycemia as a side effect. Huge, huge medication when it comes to type 2 diabetes. Yep. Agreed, agreed. And, you know, in the U.S., they are um, clearly ahead of us and already uh, using this medication pretty widely. Hopefully we soon see that uh, appear north of the border. All right. And uh, next up, let's see. I have two. Do I want to do diabetes or non-diabetes one? Uh, maybe for the sake of flow. Okay, let's let's vaguely stay related to diabetes. Um, this was a semaglutide and cardiovascular outcomes in obesity without diabetes, published in New England Journal in November 2023. Okay, what was the question here? Among adults who are obese and have cardiovascular disease but do not have diabetes, does semaglutide improve cardiovascular outcomes? Lots of reasons why this is going to be a top five. What do you think stands out for you? There are no drugs, zero drugs that improve cardiovascular outcomes among adults with obesity, and one-third of Canadians are obese. Boom. That's why this caught my top five. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, how'd they do this study? So multi-centered, double-blind, placebo-controlled, industry-funded randomized trial. The population, they included adults age 45 and up with pre-existing cardiovascular disease, such as MI, stroke, and a BMI of 27 and up. They excluded adults with type 2 diabetes, um, adults who are already using a GLP-1 in the past 90 days, or those with end-stage renal disease or an NYHA class 4 heart failure. The intervention was once weekly semaglutide, starting at a dose of 0.24 milligrams once weekly and increasing every four weeks thereafter, and the comparator was placebo. The outcome was this three-point MACE, so composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. All right, show me the money. What was the main result? So there was nearly 18,000 patients enrolled. The mean age was 62, 72% were male, mean BMI was 33, and 65% had a prior MI. This primary outcome of three-point MACE occurred in 6.5% of those who got semaglutide and 8% who got placebo. That corresponded to a 20% relative risk reduction and a 1.5% absolute risk reduction. The rates of adverse events, it's important to note, were certainly um, higher in the semaglutide group when you look at reasons for stopping the drug. So 16% in the semaglutide, 18% in the placebo group. On balance, some of their secondary outcomes were wickedly impressive. For example, on average, the people who um, received semaglutide experienced a 10% reduction in weight. They also had a 75% reduction in their risk of diabetes. These numbers are just incredible. A 10% reduction in your in your weight. Like, my goodness, who would have ever imagined? Okay, uh, what are the limitations? There's got to be a couple. There's very few, right? Like, this is a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial of nearly 18,000 patients. How can you really poke holes in something like this? I think the biggest limitation will be, of course, cost consideration, how well will this be tolerated in the sort of routine care? And in addition, certainly whether or not these benefits pertain to adults who are obese but don't have cardiovascular disease is unknown. So, you know, small limitations, if I'm going to be honest. 
Yeah, fair. Okay, what was the bottom line here? Uh, bottom line for adults who are obese and have cardiovascular disease, we should clearly be giving them semaglutide. It reduces not only their weight, but also their risk of heart attack, stroke, or death from cardiovascular causes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, John, and what's up next on uh, on your top five? So next, this is cefipime versus piptazo in adults hospitalized with acute infection, the ACORN randomized control trial. This was published in JAMA October 2023. Uh-huh, I'm seeing a trend. You are partial to JAMA. I am partial to New England Journal. I don't know why. We'll find out soon. But anyway, what was the research question here? They wanted to know whether piptazo or cefepime, antibiotics commonly used for treatment of presumed sepsis, are associated with AKI, death, or neurologic complications like delirium. Yeah, I really like this, this idea of a randomized trial that compares one drug to another drug is very rare. So it's so refreshing to see these types of trials, especially when they're looking at outcomes that we care about. But why did it catch your eye? Yeah, you've already kind of highlighted some of that. So, you know, there was observational data to suggest that piptazo is associated with AKI, but there's also some data to suggest that cefepime is associated with neurologic toxicity, but there's clearly no head-to-head comparison. And so, Really, the researchers here are asking a very pragmatic question with a really straightforward design and results that will definitely impact clinical practice. So I think you just got to give a lot of credit where credit is due. All right. And what was their design here? This was a pragmatic, open-label, single-center randomized control trial. The population included adults in the emergency department or a medical ICU for whom a clinician ordered cefepime or piptazo within 12 hours of presentation to hospital. Patients were excluded if they had a drug allergy to either, or if they'd received antibiotics in the prior seven days, or if the physician clinically determined that one drug really represented the better treatment option. The intervention, as well as comparator, so patients were randomized to either cefepime or piptazo. The primary outcome here was highest stage of AKI or death arising between randomization and day 14. And for AKI, they used a five-level ordinal scale depending on the severity of the creatinine rise. They also looked at days alive and free of delirium or coma within 14 days. Yeah, and I don't know. um, I was seeing this somewhere on social media, but it's so freaking cool how they designed this study. Like, cool, like as a nerd who loves medicine and (laughs) clinical trials. Um, If you were on call at this hospital and you ordered Piptazo or you attempted to, as soon as you ordered it, it said, hey, would you be willing, um, including this person in this randomized trial, they could also get cefepime. And if you said yes, then that started the cascade of getting this person enrolled in the randomized trial, which I think is just so elegant, especially considering many physicians just kind of like act randomly. And it would likely make a lot more sense to like randomly assign treatment and then learn something from it. And I think that's really interesting too, because whereas a lot of the time the electronic medical record is making our lives harder, here's a great example where they use the medical record to their advantage to get very quick decisions about randomization into the trial or not. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly impressed. Anyway, what did they find here? So 2,511 patients were included in the final analysis. The median age was 58. The majority of patients were enrolled within the emergency department, 
they found no significant difference in highest stage of AKI or death at 14 days between Piptazo or Cefepime. I can't pronounce this medication. The majority, 73 to 75%, did not die or experience an AKI at any stage. The addition of vancomycin also did not seem to have any impact on risk for AKI. What they also found, though, was that there was a higher percentage of patients in the Cefepime group who experienced coma or delirium, and that was 21% versus 17%. Yeah, a pretty elegant uh, results and um, certainly impressive. What are the limitations? You know, this was a single center design, so I guess you always wonder about generalizability um, because of that. It was also an open label design too. Uh, the lack of blinding might have impacted things when you think about the diagnosis of delirium, for example, especially if you already are anticipating higher rates of delirium because of cefepime, because of, you know, those older observational studies. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the single center part, that is a fundamental potential flaw. It's really impressive that it got into JAMA. Um, but often if you have a single center randomized trial, these really big journals will say, that's cute. That's very cute. But no, this is not going to end up in a big journal. But I think it did because there are no high quality data prior to this. So really freaking impressive. And um, I'm sold. But anyway, w w what was the bottom line? Uh, so the bottom line here was that Piptazo isn't associated with an acute kidney injury. As well, Cefepime is associated with delirium or coma with that 4% absolute difference in rates. So something to consider when you're prescribing antibiotics, especially in a patient population like a frail or elderly patient who might be at higher risk for delirium in the first place. Totally agree. All right. And last and maybe least in all honesty, as I, as I think more about it, um, is the early versus later anticoagulation for stroke in adults with atrial fibrillation. The ELAN trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in June 2023. Okay, cool. What was the question here? Is it safe to start anticoagulation early after a stroke in adults who have atrial fibrillation? Ah, that's a very practical question. Why was it top five for you? I think that's why it made it into the top five. It just felt like a very common practical question. And when I'm up in the in Sault Ste. Marie, I am the quote unquote stroke doctor. And it's a question I wrestle with often when I'm seeing patients. There's really been no high quality randomized data prior to this with maybe an exception, spoiler alert. Um, so that's why it really made it into the top five. Yeah. Okay. How did they do this study? This was an open-label, randomized, controlled trial. The population were adults who came in with stroke in the past 48 hours and had atrial fibrillation. The main exclusion criteria was a contraindication to a DOAC, um, including intracranial hemorrhage. The intervention, this is a little bit tricky, so stay with me here, listeners. Um, early treatment was defined as within 48 hours, if the stroke was minor or moderate. And it was considered early for adults with a severe stroke, or I should say a major stroke, then they would have gotten a DOAC on day six or day seven. The comparator group, so again, if it was a minor stroke, then they would start it at day three or day four. And if it was a major stroke, they would start it around day 12. The outcome, a little bit messy, but a composite of recurrent stroke, systemic embolism, intracranial hemorrhage, major extracranial bleeding, or vascular death within 30 days. Okay, what'd they find? 
They randomized 2,013 individuals. The primary outcome occurred in 2.9% in the early treatment group and 4.1% in the later treatment group. So we're looking at approximately a 1% absolute risk reduction. Yes, the confidence intervals crossed one, but no, that doesn't mean that this is not informative. And they also found a similar risk of bleeding between the two groups. Yeah, I mean, sounds pretty important. Uh, what are some of the limitations here? So this was an unblinded randomized trial. And as mentioned, the confidence interval crossed one, which means there's a possibility that maybe early treatment is not going to be um, superior. However, the reason why this made it into my top five is because there was actually another trial published in circulation in 2022 called the timing trial, which showed nearly identical results to this, but were smaller. So when I put these together, for me, it's like, boom, this is practice changing. We should not be waiting a week before starting an anticoagulant in adults who have a minor or moderate stroke. No, no, no. We should be starting it probably within 48 hours. And of course, for individuals with a more major stroke, we can start it early, but it's not like within 40 to 72 hours. We're probably waiting maybe five to seven days. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty impressive. I guess that kind of is the bottom line, but anything else like as kind of a final thought for that paper? No, I, I think that really is the bottom line right there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, 2023, not a bad year for research. Makes you wonder like what's coming down the pipeline for 2024. No pressure on the incoming year. Yeah, seriously. I feel like, like, I, I feel like you can't have any more blockbuster trials in the diabetes world, but <laughs> maybe I'm going to be wrong. I bet you will see some more blockbuster trials related to derzepatide. I bet you will find some new indications for SGLT2s. That's my kind of gut feeling. Oh, and I bet you a ton of money that we will find some practice-changing results from the BALANCE trial, which randomized adults to 7 days versus 14 days for those with bacteremia. Yeah, that'd be nice to know. And the other one, oh, geez, what was that random anticoagulation medication that like targets a new factor? There was like the press release for it. Fingers crossed, I'm cautiously optimistic that it's also going to be some new practice-changing medication, but I feel like maybe I'm just gullible. No, you're probably right. It, it really is fascinating, though, because when there is a practice-changing randomized trial, these um, sneaky drug companies will have these large press releases that are like, hey, we stopped the trial and we found some practice-changing results, and here are the top-line results, and the paper will come out soon. And the drug companies say, oh, no, 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 this isn't promotion. We just have like a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders to report this. But then, look what they do when they have randomized trials that show a whole lot of nothing. Example, Paxlovid. There's no press release. <laughs> what about the fiduciary responsibility? So anyway, I, I, I think uh, it is really, you know, I think it's marketing when they have these large press releases. Um, but that really seems to be what gives us a heads up about what might be coming down the pipeline for um, industry funded trials, at least. Yeah, that's fair. All right, John, I feel like that was a lot of good stuff for... 2023 but uh any good stuff that you wanted to share 
Uh, so I guess, okay, sure. If people have time to watch Netflix, uh, just finished watching the Beckham series. My goodness, it is really interesting. Like he and his wife, Victoria are very interesting people and I never really gave them any credit beforehand, but yeah, it's, it's a great watch. It was really, really into it. Yeah, I, I agree. Britt and I, uh, got into it and I think we have, um, we have one episode left, so Maybe that's what we'll do. Yeah, maybe that's what we'll do tonight. We'll watch that episode. For for me, um, there's this company called, oh gosh, I should know this. I think it's called like Upside Drinks or something like that. Uh, yes, UpsideDrinks.ca. I don't own any stock in the company. What they sell are non-alcoholic beers, non-alcoholic ciders, Rattlers, whatever. They're actually pretty delicious. So... Um, I, I really got into them in 2023, and I think I'll continue it in 2024. In particular, they have a 0% Guinness, which is remarkably good, and no alcohol. Jeez. You know, it's funny. I had, I don't think it was from these guys, but it's from a Vancouver company who does non-alcoholic cocktails. Uh, it was like a, one was a mojito, I think. Also delicious. It was, I don't know, like, I mean, yeah, it tasted great. I'll have to incorporate more of those in the 2024. Yes, there you go. Incorporated into 2024, and I am going to go watch Beckham with a 0% Guinness. That sounds like a nice way to end the night. Excellent. Well, all the best, Mike, and uh, we'll see you in 2024. All right, John. Take care, and and thanks again, listeners, for all of your support. Um, Have a happy holiday, and stay well, and we'll see you in 2024. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.